0: Excellent. Um, I think we might get started. I I think a few more people are going to sort of float in as we go. Um, But I think given that we've got two speakers, we might need to to maximise our time. Um, Welcome to to this week's Oxford Transitional Justice Research Seminar. It's it's great to see um, such an excellent turnout, although entirely not surprising given the the two speakers we've got this evening and and the subject matter that we're going to talk about. Um, It's a real honour to to have with us uh, Dr Blessing-Miles Tendi, who I know is, is very familiar to, to, to many of you. Um, Miles, of course, is, a, is an expert on many aspects of historical and current issues in Zimbabwe, which we're going to hear plenty about this evening, I'm sure. Um, Miles not only is a, an academic researcher um, on Southern Africa and Zimbabwe in particular, but of course you, you will have seen his name a great deal in, in the daily press, um, principally in The Guardian and such places, making sure that uh, Southern Africa and Zimbabwe are very much on the, the UK media agenda and uh, and internationally as well. Um, Miles is going to to speak to us on the topic of papering over the cracks reconciliation in Zimbabwe's unity government era. And then directly after Miles um, we will then have the, the privilege of hearing Janice Winter. Again, a very familiar face I know to, to many of you. Um, Janice has, has recently left Oxford and she's now a a, manager, a program manager at the Access um, Program um, on Democracy and Journalism. Janice has a, a long career as a, as a journalist um, in Southern Africa before she, she came to Oxford and of course Janice also has, has done extensive research in Zimbabwe looking at transitional justice issues. Um, so Janice is then going to speak to us on the topic of debating transitional justice in Zimbabwe, victim-centered rhetoric or reality. Um, those of you who are, have been to OTJR events a lot over the last couple of years will know that Zimbabwe has been a very common theme uh, for us as a group. Um, so I guess this evening's event you know, very much follows on from those previous uh, discussions on Zimbabwe that we've had. Um, We've had theatre productions on Zimbabwe. We had, of course, Sekai Holland, the Zimbabwean minister, um, on accountability, reconciliation and healing at our conference uh, here in Oxford in June. Um, So I think that a lot of those themes and these very ongoing discussions about Zimbabwe are going to get picked up in our discussions this evening. So we'll have the the two presentations um, back to back and then we'll uh, come to Q&A afterwards. Over to you, Miles. Thanks very much.
1: Great, Um, thanks everyone for coming. Um, My argument is a simple one. Um, It is that um, basically reconciliation in the government phase is a matter of papering all the cracks. Uh, And I'm going to back up my argument by exploring five areas. Um, first off, I'm gonna give a historical overview of reconciliation in Zimbabwe beginning in 1980. Second, the process to a nature of Zimbabwe's power sharing agreement in 2008. Third, an assessment of the organ of national healing reconciliation and integration, which was set up during the power sharing agreement through the, through the power sharing agreement to facilitate reconciliation. Fourth, an examination of PF and the military's conduct towards reconciliation in the UNI government period. And fifth, an inspection of the Morgan-Tungyar NBC's activities in relation to reconciliation. This is where we're going. Take my hands. Hope you won't get lost. (laughs) Right, number one, historical overview. Now, Zimbabwe experienced a protracted liberation war against colonialism. Um, There were untold human rights violations on both sides, but these were never addressed. Because of the independent settlement reached at Lancaster House in 1979, which did not lay a constructive foundation for nation building, a general amnesty for perpetrators of the human rights violations of the liberation war period was pronounced, setting the ground for reconciliation. Now, systematic racial discrimination was the pillar of white domination in the colonial years, but its negative legacies were not tackled post-independence. The race relations remained problematic from 19, 1980, but the subject was never taken seriously, and some even romanticized independent Zimbabwe's so-called rec- racial reconciliation. The short-sighted Lancaster House Agreement was more intent on appeasing and protecting the white minority's economic privileges than it was long-term nation For Mugabe and Zano pf the resort to reconciliation was expedient the language of reconciliation toward Western acceptance Western <laughs> Miles, you've just <laughs>
0: yeah, you're getting criticism already right? <laughs> yeah, so to South Africans are always turning the lights off in Zimbabwe aren't they? Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, the language of
1: reconciliation for Western acceptance, acceptance for his government which many had feared would champion communism and disregard private property rights by nationalizing white-owned assets. Now, the effect of these unresolved legacies is twofold. Firstly, the early independence emphasis on racial reconciliation resulted in the neglect of the need for meaningful reconciliation within the black population, where liberation wartime nationalist rivalries persisted. Little surprise that in the early 1980s, Mugabe ordered a campaign of violence against, The campaign of violence aimed at crushing Matabea and Midlands provinces, allegiance to ZAPU, which was a rival black nationalist party to Mugabe's Zanabia. After 20,000 lives were lost, when this campaign, called the Gukurahundi ended, there was no amnesty, there was another amnesty, and ZAPU was forced to dissolve its structures, and joins ZANU-PF under a government. That's the first effect. The second one, which would be felt much later uh, than what happened in the early 1980s with Rahundi, is the violent anti-white farm seizures that were erupted in 2000. <coughs> the Lancaster House Agreement left economically advantaged white Zimbabweans, particularly those who own commercial farms. Were vulnerable to envy and resentment by a majority black population that understood white dominance in terms of unresolved colonial legacies. This was fertile earth for demagogues attempting to rouse nationalist sentiment. San played on this lush soil of historical grievance to justify a violent campaign that persecuted whites and proclaimed that Zimbabwe in Africa was for blacks. Whites could not be African. There were, of course, contradictions. Um, there were hundreds of thousands of black farm workers, many of whom were migrant laborers from neighboring countries such as Mozambique and Malawi who worked on these fields, who, during the farm sieges, were simply displaced and denied citizenship rights. I want to move on to the process and nature of Zimbabwe's <coughs> power-sharing agreement in 2008. But before I do this, I want to leave you with this. There have been other violent episodes in Zimbabwe's independence period, all of which are unaccounted for officially. And there has been no justice or reconciliation afterwards. In 1980, hundreds of Zimbabwean strikers were arrested and others killed during state repression of massive strikes, mostly against multinational corporations. In 1998, there were popular riots against the Zanopian government over-increases in the price of basic commodities. Zimbabwe's military forces, equipped with live ammunition, guns, tear gas, battle sticks, and armed vehicles, were deployed into the townships to suppress the unrest. Mass violence, beatings, intimidation, and looting ensued for three days. Unaccounted deaths, injuries, and arrests transpired. In 2005, the Zanapiev government carried out Operation Marambachina, a nationwide urban cleanup operation in which about 700,000 Zimbabweans lost their homes in evictions which, according to the United Nations, took place before alternatives could be provided, thereby violating human rights and several provisions of national and international law. The majority of the victims of Marambachina still do not have adequate housing. To the process and nature of Zimbabwe's partial agreement in 2008. The disturbing violence and human rights abuses witnessed in Zimbabwe's 2008 elections have some of their roots in the country's unresolved legacies of pseudo reconciliation, impunity, intolerance, and the primacy of a coercive state. Now I've given you a historical overview of these briefly. So so it was important that in 2008, uh, during the negotiations, that the diplomatic push to reach a power-sharing deal in Zimbabwe didn't overlook the purpose of resolving these negative places. If they were disregarded as they were at Lancaster House and throughout the post-independence period, Zimbabwe will experience more violent occurrences in the future. Then the international media concerned states, international regional bodies will once again look on helplessly wondering how can this, such violence be happening? Well, they were overlooked. Why? First, the military ran the 2008 violence in support of Mugabe's Zanabra. By 2008, the military had emerged as a significant seat of power, deeply embedded in, in, in the arms of the state and the national economy. Indeed, to this day, there is a great <coughs> unknown about Zimbabwean politics. This greater known is who controls who. Are Mugabe and Zanapia taking orders from the military? Is it Mugabe and Zanapia calling the shots instead? Or are they equals in a symbiotic relationship? We can debate all this later. My point here is that because of the military's power, you have to get the military's binding on the power-sharing deal. To get the military on board, <coughs> prosecution, proper truth-telling, reconciliation, on the 2008 violence were taken on the table. What did Zimbabwe get? Well, this leads me to part three of the talk, an assessment of the organ of national healing, reconciliation, and integration, which are set up through the power sharing arrangement to facilitate reconciliation. Now, the Minister of National Healing, reconciliation, and integration in the office of the Prime Minister, Sekai Holland, presented a paper at the Oxford University Transitional Justice Conference on the 26th of June, 2009. Now, to be fair, Holland acknowledged that nas- national healing, reconciliation, and integration will not be an easy process for Zimbabwe, and that it will probably not happen as quickly as nations' ex- expectations would anticipate. Political torrents, impulse, and hatred are filtered into other areas, causing violent conflict over a period of generations, which, is, which has led to extensive harm to individuals, families, and the damaging of environment society. This is all Harlan. She's right about all this. But nonetheless, there are serious problems. The organ that, that was set up to deal with reconciliation has lofty ideals. Lofty ideals that it cannot turn into reality because it lacks authority. One, two, respect. Three, the, uh, the finance required for it to be fully operational and effective. But I want to link my assessment of, of reconciliation in the union government phase to the behavior of Zanopia from the military and the Changi-Rank in DC. I will start with Zanopia from the military. Now, Minister Holland is correct that the security sector, is nece- security sector reform is necessary if Zimbabwe is to turn the page on state-sponsored violence, so to speak. However, the National Security Council, under which necessary security sector reforms are supposed to occur, has only met once since the UNIC government took charge back in February. Just once. This is November. Why have they met once? Well, Sanofi have retained control of the security arms of the state under the Power sharing Agreement, <coughs> and the military generals have simply refused to attend meetings. They continue to hold meetings under the Joint Operations Command, which is a Rhodesian relic. Which brings together the heads of an army, air force, police, prison services, central intelligence organization, the state security and defense ministers, who all are from ZANU and the command in chief of the Zimbabwe Defense Forces, President Robert Kapp. There is no timetable for security sector reform and demilitarizing the state. ZANU is not abandoned its strategy of repression either. Human rights defenders, journalists, and lawyers continue to be intimidated harassed, threatened, and detained, and charged, often from malicious prosecutions. Human rights NGOs persistently highlight state-led political violence against NBC activists and supporters, with human rights violations reminiscent in nature to those that occurred in 2008 in the of elections, still being witnessed in some parts of the country. White, um, the seizure, invasion of white commercial farms also continues. Should we still see all this in the papers. Senior opposition politicians also live with this uneasy calm. For example, two, um, three months ago, the Changira NDC finance minister, in B T, received a letter containing a live 90mm bullet and a warning to prepare your whip. One NDC MP was arrested for playing music that denigrates Mugabe. The other, well, another different one, was stealing us off. There can be no national healing, reconciliation, and integration under these conditions. Zimbabwe is going nowhere. That is a naked reality. Running from that is an attempt to run away from one's shadow. Minister Holland tried to run away from her shadow law when she was here earlier this year by downplaying these Zanopia activities as acts committed by residual elements, but these are not residual elements. This is not the work of residual elements. The military bases that ran last year's violence remain in place and ready to go <coughs> on election be called. All the utterances, Holland and others have been making that Zanipiev can no longer wage violence on last year's scale must be rubbished as delusions. Come the next elections, I think I'm getting polemical. I don't know, but come the next elections, there will be a rude awakening in national by those who underestimate PF's capacity and appetite for more violence. So we need to be clear on this. Justice, reconciliation, national healing are simply not part of PF's agenda. They belong to the NDC. And I think that's very clear if you read the, the Global Political Agreement, the document itself. You can tell by the language, the way it's put across, that you, you basically have two different entities writing their, their different ideals into this do, this document <coughs> that's all you know, single and genetic. I'll give you an example, articles three, four, and five. That's pure Xano, PFC, articles four, three, and five. 3, 4, and 5 of the GPA agreement. They focus on the economy, land, and moving sanctions. That's Zanupriya's talk. Article 7, 8, and 6 focus on rights, reconciliation, constitutional reform, issues the NDC has consistently campaigned around since 1999. So even within the agreement, the document itself, you could, there's that tension, there's this clear division. And that <coughs> set the tone for what we're seeing right now, which is inspection of the morgan in ni mdc activities in relation to reconciliation. This is what I want to do. Now, the MDC's activities have been flawed, in my view, because the MDC's actions in reconciliation are based on a curious and mistaken <coughs> understanding and representation of Zimbabwe's history, <coughs> which is tapped out to an abuse of history. I'll give three examples to substantiate my case. First, the embassy's position on violence is that it has been state-sponsored all along. And that came through in Minister Holland's talk. It's constantly the state against society elements and the opposition, all true, very true. Um, the NBC did face monumental violence in the state. But nonetheless, to present the violence in that form only is to hide the fact that sections of the NDC also wage violence against the Zon-PF. Minister Holland herself used an NDC militia group to canvass for support in her constituents during the 2000 parliamentary elections. She did not mention that when she was in Oxford. There is also the matter of internal violence there was and still is internal NDC violence between party rivals. Indeed, the use of violence is one of the main reasons why the NBC split in October 2005. You cannot talk about reconciliation in Zimbabwe without addressing NDC violence as well. Second, when Minister Holland was in Oxford, she referred to the early 1980s kukuro and as genocide, from David Coulthard to Morgan Chongirai to Arthur Tambar, the MDC is uncompromising in its unremitting use of the history of the Kukurundi for political marriage by referring to it as genocide. <coughs> Those who should use the word genocide never let it slip them out. Those who unfortunately do use it and trivialize it into a validation of every kind of victim. In contemporary times, colonialism, imperialism, and slavery have been accorded the dubious title of genocide when there were systems to exploit rather than intended to <coughs> system- systematically decimate human lives. Across the world, invoking the term genocide immediately brings to mind recollections and images of the most inhumane undertakings, such as eviscerated and bloated these black bodies floating down Kikara River into Lake Victoria. And the Holocaust of skeletal Jews filing into of the gas chambers and Nazi death camps. The extreme stigma, revulsion, and indignation surrounding the term genocide has been conscripted by an independent political actors and parties, international media, civil society, to demonize unpopular human rights violating missions. The NDC has done likewise. But this isn't helpful in trying to understand the motives of the government and only solves greater division in Zimbabwe. The NDC would be hard-pressed to prove that the gukra was committed with the intent to destroy in whole and part a national, ethnical, racial, religious group. The Gukrahundi was aimed at destroying a political group, Sample, instead. That's what it was about. You can blame Stalin for the definition of genocide, which excluded the destruction. So it's unhelpful to call it that. And only sows greater division. A third of the third abuse I want to cite is Minister Holland's widely publicized, publicized assertion earlier this year that Zimbabwe <coughs> has experienced state-sponsored violence for 900 years. In Holland's words, it's over words now. In an honest way, when we looked at our history, we were shocked to find that we had 900 years of state-sponsored violence from different chiefnesses and kingdoms which had been in our country. By the time that Mzillikazi's mob came after stealing the cattle from land, there was nothing they knew how to do that had not been done before. And when the pioneer column came, they were not as professional as the ones who had come before, i.e. Tibet. Right? Now this is the minister of national Healing with absolutely no sense of history. There's a book that's just come out by Brian R. called uh, "Becoming Zimbabwe: uh, A History." Now, this is a rigorous uh, uh, piece of the book of you know, historical inquiry that tries to give an alternative overview to the prevalent narratives and accounts of Zimbabwe's history. There is a chapter in there, the first chapter, that unpacks what is shown and what is given. And if you read that, you will find that it was only in the late 19th century that the idea of Shona appeared, and that there was never a single homogenous Debele. The term Debele, as Paul would use it here, is a modern and highly politicized construction. Zimbabwe, therefore, needs to get away from this false bifurcation between the Shona and Debele. Poland's reference to King Zelikazi's people as a mob was taken by some the deviled people, i.e. as a denigration of the symbol of their nation. Holland eventually met deviled traditional chiefs and the descendant of King Zelikaze, Prince Suide Karamanu Kumalo, to apologize for her utterances. Like Zanapieh, the MDC has used history in a distorted and divisive way, making national reconciliation an even harder. Now, this evidence I've presented um, points to a flawed national reconciliation policy. Certainly, at the national political level, we are unlikely to witness Mm -hmm. um, a strong move towards reconciliation. If there is to be some forms of reconciliation in Zimbabwe, it's likely to occur, occur at local levels. The traditional mechanisms um, between the people communities, these villages that experience, that experience violence in that sense um, it's a paper over the cracks um, and um, we can expect more of the same we're seeing more of the same already and even worse come the next elections I think I'll stop here thank you for i